1: um uh, everything that uh i don't know seems to be driving our lives um as we spend more time inside uh at the moment still um excited excited to share the show with you tonight we've got um a few great conversations later on uh and a fair bit of stuff to talk about uh in between those things uh tonight on the desk we have Roe Murray Roe, how are you
0: very well how are you are
1: doing pretty good have you have you had a, a good week so far in in technology fair middle uh,
0: so- so far, so good. Seem to be um, getting getting ready for a big uh, big analogue night of assembling furniture. So stepping away from tech for a moment. Oh, what'd you get? <laughs> uh, IKEA footstools. The whole working from home thing, you discover all of the Oc Health safety risks lying around your own house. So getting organised.
1: Mm, sounds good. Um, also, Dan Morganti. Dan, how are you?
2: Yeah, very well. Uh,
1: thanks, Warren. Have you uh have you been doing okay uh on the interwebs this week?
2: Uh yeah. I actually we interviewed Beth uh from Triple R about her programme at the Wheeler Center Signal Boost and I applied for that. So um made a little three minute audio piece and uh yeah, gave it a go. It's uh my idea was the prompt was public and I decided to talk about public toilets. So um some sound effects in there that you can imagine. Nice. Um
1: I, I don't know. I'd like to think you're a good chance. There's no nepotism involved here, but um, yeah, you'll have to, I guess, crowd in with everybody else there.
2: Yeah, I, ho- I hope so. I've I got my fingers crossed.
1: <laughs> uh, I'll be with you too uh, also uh, for the next uh, 57 minutes, uh, Warren Davies. Um, tonight on the show, um, bias and algorithms and uh, I guess um, artificial intelligence of, of all kinds is something that uh, needs our care and attention. Um, I think we might talk about this a little bit later, but I did see a piece where um, chest x-rays of uh, COVID positive patients uh, couldn't be discerned from uh, fluffy black cats. So when that situation is going on, we need to be asking a lot of questions about how we're uh, designing, um, uh, inputting, and uh, I guess uh, stewarding um, uh, algorithms. Um, So we're going to have a chat with someone who knows uh, a little bit about that stuff. Um, University of Melbourne PhD candidate uh, Tilman Dingler uh, joins us to talk about uh, his research uh, in a few minutes' time, uh, which will be uh, fascinating. Um, Also, uh, you may recall uh, recently we did talk about um, a a walkout by Facebook uh, employees um, over their position on um, uh, a few things, Um, and we're going to be joined a little bit later in the show by uh, Dr. Belinda Barnett of um, Swinburne University, uh, who's a a social media expert, and she'll uh, tell us a little bit more about what was actually happening uh, in, in that situation. But before those, um, there is uh, a bit to talk about, um, and I think one of the things that um, I'm going to start with is uh, a piece uh, regarding the uh, COVID Safe um, app and uh, potentially um, uh, another bug. Um, so, uh, Vanessa Teague, who you may recall we spoke with, um, uh, a few weeks ago, um, about the Safe app, um, did tweet, um, uh, not that long ago that it doesn't actually work from locked iPhones because it can't get a new temp ID. Um, so it's actually an app bug, not a fault with, uh, iPhones. We did talk about, um, early on, uh, in the development of the Safe app that, um, there were some specific issues around iPhones that we had to kind of work through or I, I guess, you know, it felt like the right thing to do was cut uh, cut the government and the app a little bit of slack there to see how they would go, but um, that's that's well and truly passed and um, looks to be a, a fault with the app. Um, it was introduced with the new version. Um, it's not the same as the other problems of, of background iPhones and, and so forth. Um, yeah, how, how do you how do you two feel about this? Have you been using the app? Do you know anyone who's used the app? What, what's what's been your experience with it?
2: Um, I haven't used the app, but as far as issues with it go that's not as malicious as it could have been it's uh no spyware or anything like that but also yeah unsurprising but this late in the game i think they should have most of the bugs ironed out it's uh getting towards uh you know uh, unforgivable territory at the moment
1: it'll be covid 2.0 soon yeah and we're still figuring out covid (laughs) 1.0 what do you think Ro?
0: I I haven't downloaded it and I haven't installed it and I haven't used it because I am an iPhone user and I just it's it's just not going to add any value to my life at this point I don't think so and because every time you do turn around and there's another fault with the iPhone experience so I've really just stayed steered clear of it. Yeah, fair enough.
1: Good call. <laughs> um. Another interesting call uh, that happened, um, uh, I think it was uh, just this week, earlier this week, uh, on Monday, in fact. Um, Facebook, the social media giant, issued its response to the uh, ACCC, uh, which has been tasked with uh, creating, a, a, I guess, a, a mandatory code of conduct and a, a level playing field for um, the media and, and news sources and, and distribution sources uh, in Australia. Um, we've covered this story a little bit um, over the past few months, Um I, I could speculate that um, uh, media owners in Australia have been leaning on uh, the government to um, get a bit of uh, protection and uh, a little bit of um, uh, uh, help with things such as uh, advertising revenue and I guess the, the traffic moving from traditional news sources to, to all different kinds of news sources um, over the past decade or so. Um, Facebook has actually rejected a proposal uh, to share advertising revenue with uh, news organisations saying uh, there would be not significant impacts on its business if uh, if it stopped sharing news altogether, which I was kind of staggered by. Um, uh, lots of research has shown that a lot of people do go to um, uh, social media sources for news, um, or news even just drifts into their feed, um, and, and it has been a large part of, the, um, uh, I, I guess, our uh, Muesli of information that comes through um, uh, via, our, via our screens. Um, yeah, so on Monday they did uh, rebuff the A Triple C that's trying to sort of claw back some of the, the lost revenue for, for news organisations in Australia. Um, Facebook and Google had previously refused to accept that they need to, to pay for using news content, um, and it's a, in its submission uh, it said it rejected many of the A C's potential ideas, say, saying that there was healthy rivalry between itself and news organisations. Um yeah. They said they like the idea of a code of conduct but but um uh they'll
2: be they'll being singled out. They're just they're just the humble tech brands. Yeah. Pretty pretty par for the course about now. Like we don't actually own yeah. anything on our platform. We're just the platform for people to say what they want. We don't have to uh curate it or anything like that, only if we feel like we want to. We're just the pipes. Yeah, that's it. Mm. 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 What do yeah, you think, okay.
0: right? Oh, all okay, care no responsibility I think um, the, the the entire Facebook business model is, is essentially built on keeping people on the app and keeping them engaged and there's only so many times you want to be waved at by you know great auntie Um it's it's really the feed that keeps people using it and that generates Facebook's revenue so you know I, I think it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a strong arming approach to life when they could actually revise their business model ever so slightly and actually contribute to the you know a, a beneficial change to the Australian media landscape, but you know that's Facebook.
1: Mm. Mm. It's a shame. I kind of feel like um, at, at some point they've got to sort of seize an opportunity to um, a, adjust their model uh, and work with, not against uh, governments and countries and 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 you know user groups, as we might even talk about uh, a little bit later. Well, something's mm.
2: got to give, otherwise they will be uh, um, laws will be thrust upon them. Exactly.
1: Mm. Uh, speaking of. Things being thrust upon us. Dan, a bit of PlayStation news?
2: Yes, the new generation is here. Uh, PlayStation 5 announced a sleek new black and white design, which memes are saying looks like a modem uh, router which they're not wrong. It's uh, it's very sleek, um, but does have a very modem-looking look to it. Uh, Sony has revealed that there will be two versions, uh, one with a 4K Blu-ray optical drive and the other a digital-only version, meaning the, the um, necessary addition of uh, internet connection to use that one for games. Um, but they are moving towards more media centers these days as well. Um, and it looks like they're uh, finally deciding to add solid-state drives um, to their products to boost load times and bring the console into the 21st century. Uh, PCs and solid-state drives have been around for a while, but they're finally getting around to adding them into the consoles. This, of course, comes as Xbox announced their next-generation console, uh, Series X, uh, in December. So, uh, yeah, both new Sony and Microsoft consoles are upon us. Also, uh, it's important to note that this is all marketing at this point. Take it with a grain of salt. Video games companies uh, have been known to embellish a tad. Uh, So I'm sure it's going to be fantastic when it gets here, but uh, don't get sucked in by the hype. Uh, Just wait to see exactly what uh, materializes from all these claims.
1: Interesting. I I do have to ask... um... When, when you sort of get home and you've got your sort of like wonderful gaming kind of, you know, sunken sort of lounge room or what have you, are you, are you putting the new PlayStation vertically or, or on its side?
2: Uh, I am a traditionalist and like to keep it on its side. Mm. Um, but yeah, they do have stands. The Xbox and PlayStation both design it to be uh, oriented any way you want. Mm. I'm sure you could uh, put it on its corner if you're that good at balancing. <laughs> um, Ro, what's been happening well, with Twitch? There's a, there's a bit of news there.
0: Bit, bit, bit of a kerfuffle where the tech world has, um, in typical form, moved faster than the legislation can. So Twitch streamers in the last couple of weeks have been hit with a number of DCMA takedown notices. And what those are for our listeners at home is basically um, a cease and desist. Take your video down, take your stream down because you're using music that you're not licensed for. Um, in short, music licensing hasn't kept up with what's happening in the streaming world, and it means that these... Um, Twitch streamers um, can, can risk uh, losing their accounts, can risk penalties, can risk fines, and can even risk being sued for using copyrighted music. But there isn't a structure in place to allow them to actually legally license it. So um, a group of Twitch streamers, um, one of which is uh, Jordan Raskopoulos of the Access of Awesome, has released a video this week calling for streaming-specific licenses to be created that are accessible, that allow creators to get paid, and also make sure that streamers won't lose their accounts and audiences over what's currently an impossible-to-obtain license. So he is hoping we see some dialogue and some changes happen there.
2: Interesting. Have you guys used Twitch? Oh, I smash it. I watch it it a lot. And this has kind of been uh, bubbling away for a while, the the issues that this has raised. Uh, It's very prominent on YouTube as well, where um, any uh, even small uh, three-second soundbite of a song can get you um, DMC takedown, took down, I guess. I don't know how you would... Taken down. Yeah. (laughs) Past or present tense, but taken down. Um, So, yeah, I'm not surprised that it's come to Twitch. Mm, Interesting. Um, I'd be keen to hear about um, what's been happening with uh, Hey.com as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, Hey.com, which is uh, part of the Basecamp family, have come out swinging this week saying that Apple is acting like, and I quote, gangsters, Um, The Apple's App Store is rejecting App Store updates and demanding a cut of sales. So they're actually turning around and saying, hey, you've got this product, we would actually like a 15 to 30% cut of your subscriptions, or we're not going to let you update your app, including bug fixes. Um, it's, It's pretty aggressive. Uh, It's a pretty aggressive tactic from um, the Apple side of the fence And it has lit up Twitter like a Christmas tree With other developers who are really um, frustrated With this systematic cash grab Um, It's also really poor timing Um, Apple's got their WWDC20 event being held from the 22nd of June Which is going to put Mm. them face to face with hundreds of developers Who are pretty cranky right now So it's going to be an interesting one to watch
1: Yeah, maybe Tim Cook will get the mobile going there
2: just just Take once i want to hear a story about one of these big companies that uh they just like they just donated a bunch of money to an orphanage or something with no uh, just altruism coming from these companies but uh i don't think that's ever going to happen <laughs> um
3: a- this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about R, or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the R website at rrr.org.au.
2: And we're speaking with Tilman Dingler. from uh, He's a uni uh, PhD candidate working on BiasBot. Uh, Tilman is a lecturer at the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and his research focuses on technologies that support and augment our cognitive abilities. Uh, before coming to Melbourne, Tillman was a project assistant professor at Osaka Prefecture University in Japan and spent some time as a visiting postdoc at the MIT Media Lab. Tillman, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Tillman, you've, you've been very busy. Um, how did you find time to kind of uh, sort of fit us into your schedule and say, this is what I want to be doing right now, looking into to sort of bias and, and how our algorithms work and, and how we're comfortable in talking about them?
4: Well... Anything after 7 p.m. is so usually <laughs> a good time, um, and so it wasn't wasn't a problem squeezing you. And um, the biases thing is really one of the you know, one of the three major projects that we're currently following, and I, I love to you know talk about them because um, it gets me excited on not just professional but also personal uh, level.
1: Hmm. What what was the uh, I guess uh, genesis of this? What made you think um, not only is it like personally and professionally interesting to me, but I, I need to do this work now? And 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 how would you describe mm. it if you're at the kind of bar or the proverbial barbecue? How would you explain what what your research is?
4: Um, Well, I guess a lot of uh, contemporary topics um, are increasingly emotionally charged, um, which you probably all have observed, um, be it political issues, really especially environmental policies and such. And so um, I guess most people, um, especially the agreeable agreeable types, tend to avoid confrontation and therefore take refuge in so-called silos of comfort. And so they mingle with like-minded peers, um, creating what's often described as uh, echo chambers, right? And then being surrounded by that same type of information tends to reinforce existing views and essentially exercise um, those confirmation biases even more. Mm. And that really has been shown to increase social and political polarization, um, you know, um, especially in the U.S. We've seen this since the presidential election. Um, so it leads really people down the figurative rabbit holes and pushing them more and more to radical tendencies as well. And, uh, that's not how democracy really works. And, um, which really lives from debates and hearing the other side and compromise. And so um, I remember conversations that I had um, with friends in Barcelona about the independence movement in Catalonia. And many wouldn't dare bringing up the topic at the family's dinner table because they knew that the cutlery would start flying once they got the discussion started. Um, so the lines between pro and contra independence were really cutting th- right through families. And as a result, the topic was generally avoided and became in famous elephant in the room, if you will. Mm. And so the question becomes: How do we converse? Um, who do we converse with? If it cannot be um, our friends, which we don't necessarily want to, you know, jeopardize those friends and and family ties. If I could just, um, so we started thinking about that. Yeah.
1: If I could just ask: like, Haven't uh, I think the situations that you're describing are, are familiar to, to to most of us? Haven't we always kind of created these, uh, I guess, silos of comfort that you called it, whether it's uh, the neighbourhood that we chose to, to live in, or you know, the newspapers that we read, or or what have you? What's what, what's Changed, um, if if anything.
4: Um, yeah, and in a sense, we we do feel more comfortable seeking out the information that that kind of confirms our beliefs, I guess. Um, but I guess there, there used to be more discipline around how to have an argumentation and the more general shared knowledge about what makes a dialogue um generative, so where you and I both learn from just having that conversation. And in recent years, and this has been documented by um, PU Research Studies, um, the polarization has really um, increased and, and arguments have become very contentious in a sense where emotions start flying high um, and really prevent us from seeing the other side and trying to find a middle ground. And that's, I think, what's different now than, for example, 30 years ago. Mm.
1: Is it... Um... Could you kind of expand on that a little bit as to what some of the – I think sort of the design of the platforms and the nature of them, They're like their massive scale and and so forth. But like underneath that, what's going on? Is it – I think, I mean, to speculate, um, if you're in a room in your street or if you're at a scout hall or after school or something like that, it's pretty familiar circumstances. So, you know, letting other people speak or argue with you is maybe a little bit easier and you know you're Mm -hmm. going to get a right of reply or you're going to see them the next day and you'll have time to think about it um could you expand on sort of some of the fundamental differences of some of these kind of um platforms that this phenomena yeah. is carrying in
4: i guess um it, on the online world kind of provides us with this um long tail of information sources right um so rather than you know 60 years ago I would I would sit down and watch tv and and i would have Probably the certainty that my neighbour watches the same program, and so we had some some basic of discussion there. And now I I fire up the internet and I go to you know to the, the to the web pages that where I feel comfortable with the information that that I seek out, and which might not be the same information that that you might be seeing. And so there there's no basic understanding anymore of of what you might be seeing or what I might be seeing. Um, and it's like yeah. This this idea of, of someone you know in the marketplace screaming at um, at uh, people at, at the crowd, and rather than um, creating that that shared experience, he's really like sneaking through the crowd and whispering different messages in different ears, and and that's what we've been seeing in social media, especially happening, and that's what you know Pariser coined this term filter bubble, but also the echo chambers in famous um, ones that that um, act like a catalyst for this uh, development. So these problems are like are fairly
2: well understood, maybe not like as eloquently as you just put it, but innately we all have a, a feeling that, that that's the case. What like what are some uh, practical steps that we could take to um, maybe get a full full range of arguments?
4: Hmm. Yeah, I think we need to really start with the debating culture. Um, and so if you look, for example, at the uh, English scholarly system that has institutionalized debating as part of the education. Um, the infamous debating clubs at Cambridge or Oxford University, where basically opponents are forced to take a clear position and then they're signed aside um which obviously can be um very contrary to their own personal beliefs and uh, and so this exercise forces these opponents into the shoe of the others and creates empathy for the other side of the argument right and so this is a fundamental empathy exercise, really opening up the mind for arguments from the other side um and that's where the middle ground really is is uh, found and explored and without the middle ground it's incredibly hard to reach any kind of uh, compromise.
0: I'm quite curious about the uh, the Biospots projects that's running at Melbourne Uni at the moment and what uh, what you envisage the I guess the end really practical application how, how will it be used in the real world after time?
4: Yeah um, so right now we we we're still in the development phase of different conversational designs, if you will. All right. So this is an idea that that um, really goes back a couple of years um, through, um, during my postdoc, um, and uh, I met this this kid from from MIT, um, Ashish Choudhary, and he was a visiting master's student there. And we thought, couldn't we build chatbots, you know, to kind of like scale this experience of um, debating with each other? Um, and so. We, we trained those chatbots on, on various topics and gave, gave them inbuilt biases based on the sources of the information in which we trained them, and so the bias bots idea was really born. Um, right now, they live um, on um, you know, constrained platforms, so um, we have dedicated websites where we explore them, but we would like them to live more um, for each, for example, in, in new, integrated in news sites. And for each topic, there is um, a... a a, a bot living there that you can engage with so rather than just um, reading a news article you can actually talk to the article if you will um, and engage maybe the author in the 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 topic with the author's voice um, or style in the conversation um, so that's what i I guess would like to see it um, as we move more to conversational interfaces rather than um, just um, one-sided pushing information um, this is an exploration really of how do we Um, design a conversation without um, pushing people um, away before they even started engaging.
0: I absolutely love um, love that idea of the application because certainly we're all anyone who uses Facebook and particularly in these quite politically, as you've said before, polarising times, um, we may be avoiding throwing knives and forks over the dinner table at our family and friends, but they're certainly getting thrown around a lot on Facebook, and um, a lot of it is people read you know taking away that one little snippet of confirmation bias and Mm -hmm. deciding that's their entire policy on a whole thing. So um, I think that's an incredibly exciting application if it can get to that point where people can, um, rather than, I guess, have the debates with other people, they can quietly educate themselves a little bit more. Would you see that as one potential benefit of it? Mm.
4: Yeah, education, um, exploration and also self-reflection. So a lot of times, um, as you said, you know, we, we pick up a snippet and we hear it over and over and over again. Um, and at some point, it becomes so deeply ingrained in our memory that we actually mistake it as, that's the truth. That's how you know I, I should think about the world. Um, and what these bots do, they, they use different techniques, such as, for example, Socratic, Socratic method, by just asking questions. Um, and, for example, by asking five times, why? Why do you think that? Is that, is that how the world is? Um do you believe such and such? Um, eventually, they try to get at the basic assumptions that people make. And by getting to them, oftentimes we realize, oh, that assumptions is completely arbitrary <laughs> rather than based on yeah. facts. And so that's, that's, I guess, the, the point of self-reflection re- um, that we want to um, achieve with these technologies. Um, like th- It seems like
2: everyone has this issue. In your study, did you come across anyone who was getting... Um, uh, you know, a robust uh, understanding of issues from both sides?
4: Um, so we're trying to um, not necessarily push them to the other side or or say, oh, this is what the other side thinks. We're trying to um, kind of prepare the middle ground. Um, and the way we do this is as by, we work with behavioral psychologists on the actual conversation. And um, often we found, for example, that in the beginning, we just said, oh, all you have to do is present a, um, a counterfact, right? Um, but that actually has been shown um, by Lewandowski and his colleagues that if you if you show a um, a contradicting fact to what people believe, they they tend to double down on their preconceived notion rather than consider that fact. Um, And so what you need to do is, and we found this out um, quite late in the process, is first to create trust um, with these bots. And so having these bots basically first kind of build that trust by arguing with you and kind of agreeing with you um, and, and then slowly moving into scenarios where the lines get a bit more blurred.
1: And what's next? So, functionally, how, how do you sort of proceed with this research? And sort of, what's uh, I'm just having a bit of a look at the type form and, and sort of what you've set up there. Be curious to know sort mm-hmm. of the nuts and bolts of it as well for people who are sort of geeky about research.
4: Yeah. Um, so, as I said, uh, um, we we we're exploring these different conversational designs right now, um, and thanks to um, the pandemic, we we have kind of. Uh, and move the research completely online. So um, we use um, a lot of um, MTurk workers to, from different geographics to engage with these bots. But what we really like to do is also, as the conversation becomes uncomfortable, can we detect um, different types of biases that occur, So, such as confirmation bias or um, a cognitive dissonance? And so in the lab, once we, got, we get back on campus, what we would like to do is use um, biophysical sensors to actually sense and quantify the effect of biases and whether we can um, yeah, track and, and show people did you actually notice that, you know, this and that and the other happened and how did that made that make you feel and um, invite them for deeper reflection on their own reaction?
1: I'd love to be in that. I'd love to be a guinea pig with all the senses there and you could sort of like note my color rise as I kind of like start bashing <laughs> away on Twitter. And um, I kind of like I feel like I'm kind of like a moth drawn to it. But I hate it when it's kind of you know not productive or you know all the things you'd be familiar with. So I think it's fascinating. Um, can, can people be involved if people want to be uh, to sort of jump in and be a guinea pig on this, or are you kind of got a closed cohort that you're kind of looking to work with? Or
4: no, absolutely. We um, we one of the challenges is actually um, recruiting participants from um, all sides of the aisle. Right. Um, so naturally, people and. At, at, um, on university um, tend to have more liberal views, but we do, in order to um, validate those techniques, we also want to talk to more conservative types. And so oftentimes we go out into the field um, or recruit through platforms such as MTurk. Um, if if you want to reach out and you say, hey, I, I would love to come to campus or just do the online version, um, yeah, just you know, contacted me and um, I'll make sure to put you on a list.
1: Where, where can people uh, sort of find the find the study or, or get in contact? Um, what, what works best for you? If people are listening right now, going, I'd, I'd love to do that. Or you know, um, my housemate's really conservative; they should talk to Tillman
4: rather than me. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you Google Tillman, you name Alban. It's a quite unique name um, to, to find my contact details there.
2: Mm,
1: thanks. Well, good luck with the, uh, the research um, and i um, very excited to, to hear where it gets to. And um, yeah, hit us up in a, in a, w- when you're done and uh, we'd love to report back on what you found.
4: Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
1: Um, You may have caught, uh, uh, I guess, some of the distress and um, uh, consternation at um, Facebook um, a couple of weeks back when uh, employees staged a a virtual walkout uh, in protest of um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's inaction regarding misleading and and inflammatory posts by uh, President Trump. Uh, we're now uh, joined uh, on the phone by Dr. Belinda Barnett, uh, who's a social media expert from uh, Swinburne University. Um, Belinda, thanks for, for joining us on the show tonight. Hi, no problem. What was, what was the beef? What was going on here? Well, I
3: think the Facebook employees were a bit ashamed, really, to be working at Facebook, um, and also felt that Zuckerberg was not living up to his um, original intention to stop at violence. So any calls to violence, he always told them he would um, take care of. And it seemed that Trump was exempt from that. And it, it was, you know, it was one of the biggest walkouts, although they were all working remotely anyway, but um, it was, it's one of the biggest work, walkouts in 15 years at the company. So it really infuriated quite a few of his own employees.
1: Is there is there much of a culture of this? I, I don't think I've ever heard until this time of a, of a walkout um, like this. Um, could, could you give some context to sort of what protest and dissent has been like at Facebook previously?
3: Um, well, e- each time um, Zuckerberg takes a, polit- a particular political stance, which seems to be increasingly conservative, um employees get upset and um you know there've been walkouts um it doesn't make a particular difference to zuckerberg though I guess is the important thing he doesn't really seem to listen to them i mean he's not listening to governments around the world who are uh, and the media and um even the the scientists at his own philanthropic organization who um protested as well he's not listening to anyone basically so it's not going to make much difference mm.
1: do you um, uh, do you think there was a, 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 um, a better um, a better way that he could have handled this I, I'm trying to sort of play devil's advocate and imagine sort of both sides here he's historic well, in recent history they've tried to be more neutral and uh, kind of passive when it comes to the, the the needs and wants of governments and and interest groups whether they're on the left or on the right or or, or where have you um, Perhaps uh, in in line with that news story that we had earlier in the show, where they just you know we, we just run the pipes, we don't sort of control the content or influence it, which is yeah, yeah. a little bit disingenuous wow. considering that's their entire business model. Is um, kind of controlling what what's in there. Um, what, what what are I just to play it out? What are some other ways that he could have kind of responded better? Um, and what does a, a large kind of behemoth like this organization do? Um, well we could
3: have done what um, Twitter and Jack Dorsey did, which was to within a matter of about forty minutes, so that pretty quickly he labelled Trump's tweet um, in the first instance as misinformation, a tweet that was um, kind of trying to suppress the vote by saying mail in vote mail in ballots were. Um, fraudulent, mm. uh, that was immediately labelled as misinformation. And then um, a couple of days later, the tweet that said, um, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, mm. which is the violent threat Trump made, that was immediately labelled as um, content that was inciting violence. Mm. So they didn't remove it. Um, and I guess there's, because he's the president, maybe you need to read what he's saying but they immediately labeled it as dangerous information well, and facebook could have done the same thing they could have
1: he's number one on facebook though i, I think I, I heard that from him directly he's number one on facebook maybe that's the problem <laughs> yeah well <laughs> I, I don't there even you know go. don't even know what that means
3: very bigly i <laughs> not I don't think people really, not not a lot of us know what he means, actually, (laughs) a lot of the time. But but I feel like um, Facebook should take responsibility for um, the content that they are promoting. So if they're going to promote a message like that, which is really inciting violence against protesters, then they should at least warn people that it's inciting violence, if not remove it. Like, take some responsibility,
2: um, Belinda. You said earlier as well that he'd always promised his staff that if there was ever a call to violence, he would um, call it out or censor it or you know t- take steps. What what other things has he um, promised his staff in kind of that that altruistic space um, that he may not have come in uh, come to heads with yet, but it could happen in the future?
3: Uh, well, I think a lot of them are upset about the lack of. Fact checking in political ads. Um, He's had a number of executives quit over the last uh, year or so, really, as this has played out. So there's a background um, battle going on, I guess, background to all of Trump's incendiary posts that um, information should be for political information and political advertising should be fact checked, which would be a massive step in stemming the flow of misinformation but it's one that he steadfastly refuses to make it's it's something he absolutely flatly refuses to do um and that's been going on in the background i, I don't think you'll ever cave in on that but it would make a massive difference to the misinformation that we see on facebook
1: it occurs to me that um there's perhaps an opportunity here to start to create some um, uh, finer controls in presentation of content like what's personal opinion um what's advertising what's influence um, i mean that's that's one of the great things about the the channel that they're working through here um, We don't have to be if we don't want to as as deliciously vague about what's influence and what's um, political clout and what's personal opinion um, Let's get kind of like really you know into the meta. Kind of levels of of what's actually going on here. Um, I think that's one of the good things that happened with um, with Twitter, and you could you could make the point that they weren't making a lot of money from political advertising, but they sort of I guess took the positive spin on that to say, well, we're actually going to uh, have a position here, and um, our platform. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. an awkward position for us to be in, so we're going we're gonna to take a stance on this. I mean, Facebook doesn't have to push away all of their, all of their mates and say, you know, we're, we're being, we're being um, sort of skewered here. Um, they can just say, this is this particular type of content, and in that context, um, personally, that person's done the wrong thing. But, you know, if the Republicans want to advertise with us, then that's another decision they can make as well. I, I feel like it could be a little bit more nuanced here.
3: Oh, absolutely. But you've got to remember that um, this is worth billions of dollars to Facebook. So if they did say we're not going to take um, political advertising, which contains falsehoods, that at least just with respect to the Republican campaign in America would be millions of dollars they'd lose. So they have a financial... Interest in it, you're right. I think Twitter has. I think Twitter's done the right thing, and they've said, look, we have responsibility here, and we have massive influence, and so we're going to actually tell you what's information, what what is misinformation, and they've kind of been on the front foot in that. And Zuckerberg has criticised them. He came out and criticised Dorsey as soon as Dorsey labelled um, Trump's tweet, and it, it's really because. Zuckerberg will never relent, as far as I can see, will never stand up and take responsibility. But I think it's also that he wants, uh, Zuckerberg wants us to see Facebook as a neutral third party that should have no responsibility for what is posted on it. It's not a publisher. It's not, um, it shouldn't have to fact check like a publisher has to fact check. It shouldn't have to Um, tell you if something is dangerous misinformation like a publisher would it Mm. it's a neutral third party and that at base is false so it's not a neutral third party it's not just a facilitator
0: no exactly it's belinda i was interested in um your take there was Um, a change to Facebook not that long ago where they were going to start labelling articles um, as theoretically, it's a terrible term, but fake news. And I did see when that was first rolled out, there were quite a few articles starting to pop up in the feed um, that were labelled as, you know, fake news. And um, that seems to have died off. Do you know if that um, has, has really had a material impact or it's been wound back or not been working very well?
3: Oh, is this Facebook's um, algorithm? So yeah, yeah. what happened? Yeah, what's happened over the last um, five months is that a massive section of their workforce are, you know, they're working remotely and they're not getting to as much moderation as they were. So mm-hmm. that particular project it involved algorithms, but also human moderators, and there's less human moderators now because of the pandemic. So. In that sense, we're seeing more
1: misinformation, Um, yeah. Is there a potential here for, uh, I guess, the more progressive elements of the the Facebook community and and staff to, um, uh, I guess, focus this energy and this kind of, um, um, you know, what most people would say constructive and positive dissent um, within within their organisation? How can they make it not just a blip or a kind of uh, something that's forgotten about um, over the coming weeks, do you think?
3: Um, you mean how can the Facebook employees get their point across,
1: sorry? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess kind of formalise, you know, what, what their concerns are and rather than just kind of, you know, someone in HR puts it in the bottom drawer and, and it's forgotten about. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like um, if Zuckerberg and the senior team there were, were smart about it and also the, the people there were also, um, uh, I guess, you know, relentless and, and careful about it, um, there could be a, a kind of a better ending to this. It, it'll just it'll just keep coming up. I, I kind of feel like um, it, it has to yeah, lead. it yeah. has to lead to something.
3: Oh, absolutely! It'll keep coming up. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think the employees are in a particularly powerful position. Um, he's not listening to anyone, and I mean, he's getting calls to. Uh, to temper or in some way at least label Trump's posts from 360 degrees from every direction, from the media, from his own employees, from users, and he's still not budging. Um, so I don't know how to make him shift. I feel like it, the only thing that would make it shift is on a country-by-country country basis if we had some kind of legislative requirement. So mm-hmm. a legislative re- Requirement that there must be truth in political advertising, and that it can't call for violence, and that it can't be misinformation—something uh, like that. I mean, we yeah. don't have um, in in Australia. We don't have laws saying that you can't have misinformation or lies in political advertising in print. So we're a long way from saying you can't do it on digital platforms. Mm.
0: No, we, we were um, talking in the news section at the start of the show um, that, you know, even even that legislative angle seems to be being ignored by Zuckerberg on slightly different topics. You know, the ACCC's, you know, asking for revenue shares from Facebook and revenue contributions and it's like, no, nope, we just don't think we will. So it's going to be um, really, really challenging even on a country by country basis and a legislative basis to get Zuckerberg to, to pay attention, I, I guess it's almost going to get to a point uh do you think it'll have to be a hip pocket thing for him and i mean an absolutely devastating hip pocket thing
3: um well to devastate facebook you would need to have a hell of a lot of money i Mm. mean it's massive over a third of the population on earth are on facebook so it's it's just an enormous company And Mm -hmm. so, if they lose 10 million here, 20 million there, it's just not going to make much difference. So, when they were getting fines by um, what was that American company? It's just slipped my mind. It's too late. Uh, The trade regulator in America, Federal Trade Commission. That seemed Mm -hmm. like an enormous sum at the time. It was like 500 million, something like that. But that's short change for Facebook. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would be a financial fine or penalty so much as government's actually making a law saying you can't actually post misinformation or you can't publish political advertising that contains falsehoods and yeah. then if they they break the law, they break the law, there's other consequences
4: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, looks like the right way to go. We'll have to uh, keep a close eye on this. Uh, I feel like it's our responsibility as well to, to kind of um, uh, keep the pressure up on uh, uh, on that company and, and reform. I think it's in everyone's best interest while we sort of continue to use it um, and in, until there's something sort of um, better or, or sort of more fit for purpose. But um, Belinda, thanks very much for, for uh, giving us a perspective on it. Um, that, was, uh, that was really uh, helpful for a lot of us who don't kind of understand the intricacies of, um, of how these platforms work. Cheers. Thanks.
3: Okay. Dan, you got some.
0: Triple R on, RRR on RRR, FM, RRR, digital, RRR, online, RRR. via the app.
1: You bite into it on Triple R this week with uh, Ruina, Dan, and Warren. Um, we were just listening to uh, Grace Turner, and that was the track Half Light. Um, there's only a few minutes to go before Anthony Carew uh, is uh, in your eardrums. Um, just a few things before that um, to uh, have a chat about. Um, robot nemesis um, is uh, apparently a hot topic for um, Ro, who's um, just getting um, kicks, kicking her computer over again, and we'll be back with this in a sec. Um, Spot is uh, a fairly famous um, uh, robot. Um, had you heard of Spot before, Dan?
2: Uh, uh, is he the traffic hitchhiking one? Uh, I think...
1: uh, Is he like a Furby? Like a Furby? No. Uh, Have you you had Furbies?
2: Uh, I had in the past, but um, they were creepy. They were a little bit creepy. Um,
1: We're going to talk about that guy in a sec, but my favourite weird bit of news um, from the week was um, they've been uh, trying to train AI to um, uh, sort of confirm if a chest X-ray has... Um, uh, A confirmation of COVID-19 symptoms so like thickness and and mucus and and so forth, some of the the symptoms but um, the results it's been returning in this particular test uh, confused uh, the lungs of a person with (coughs) COVID-19 with black cats, um, which is quite amazing Um, (laughs) so yeah, we didn't get a chance to have a chat to it, um, to Tillman about that about kind of the um, abilities of sort of visual uh, visual matching and AI and Actually, I'm doing I'm doing my bit every every morning. We play um, uh, that draw game with um, Google, trying to teach Google how to pick people's drawings and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Which we're getting better, right? Nice. Um, uh, yeah, but that's really concerning. Um, we've had a few kind of um, guests on over the past couple of years talking about great le- leaps forward in, in visual recognition for AI. But um, I don't know. That's got me a little bit concerned. Yeah, stumped. <laughs> Row, are you back? Do you want to talk through the the spot thing?
0: Yes. So I think this week I've decided that Spot's kind of like my nemesis. So for our listeners at home, uh, Spot the Robot um, sort of has been coming to fame of late, uh, became famous as the bright yellow dog-shaped robot that made an appearance in Singapore monitoring uh, people under COVID restrictions. Mm. And um, so you can now, it's official, you can get one of your own. And it's been unleashed on the world. So Boston Dynamics has now announced they will sell any business in the U.S. their own Spot robot for the bargain basement price of $74,500. So Spot has officially been unleashed in the world.
1: Wow.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> pricing.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just goes and goes, right? Like, yeah. what's... We were talking about this the other week, Row. What's what's a border collie cost to train it up?
0: Yeah, so our border collies can be about four or five thousand dollars to train up for a fully trained working sheep or cow dog, and um, yeah, so so spots a little bit more, a little bit more than that. But um, the they can be customized and will primarily they're expected to primarily be used for things like um, uh, censoring, walking around, taking photos, doing lots of tedious tasks. So we're not expecting them to do t- anything too in
1: just yet mm. well thank you very much to our guests uh, on the show tonight uh, Tillman Dingler and also Dr Belinda Barnett for uh, joining us um, Dan wrote thanks very much for um, jumping in tonight it was good fun
2: thanks Warren yeah I had a great time
0: hi this is Vanessa DeHolker thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It a weekly radio show exploring tech news broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne Australia every Wednesday Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.